Welcome back to our podcast entitled Last Ones at the Bar. We're here to talk about all of the important affairs this week in the sport of boxing. My name is Will Henry, and I'm accompanied by Lavelle Jackson and Daniel Lee. This week, we got four boxing topics that we're going to discuss, and then uh, we threw in a curveball at the end. Um, today, fellas, let me go ahead and start off. Since we're talking about, you know, competition, mainly boxing, um, Let's start off earlier this week. You had, I want to say it was the biggest versus in terms of viewership this past week. You had the Ja Rule versus Fat Joe. Did you guys check that out? No, I, I didn't check it, check it out. I heard what happened because mainly it, it went pretty much as I predicted. That, you know, they did a lot of their hit songs. And for me, when I listened to, especially, especially when I listened to Fat Joe, I was a big fan of his first few albums yeah his you know when he came out with the uh, what's love with Ashanti and all that I like that also but I was a bigger fan of you know his work even before you know Big Pun came out so of course that type of stuff you know he probably wasn't gonna gonna do but you know shouts out to both guys I'm glad they both are still around you know having a chance to feed their family they both look you know good Ja Rule looks very healthy you know so it's, it's all love I, I scored it in, in, in Ja's favor. I didn't keep count, but I just the, the eye test gave it gave it to Ja. I feel like he kind of he understood the assignment better. Feel me, like Fat Joe. He he has some hits, obviously, and some are more recent than Ja. But Ja kind of understood what was appropriate for for the moment, and was kind of like his music was timeless. And then like his like the way his his presence also was kind of more you know, uh, in tune for the versus crowd, I thought. Yeah, it, it was a it was a good show. You had um, Ja Rule coming in, uh, slamming trim about five feet on a buck 32. You know, you had Joe. He lived up to his name, weighing in about 200, I mean, 300, <laughs> pounds, you know, standing at six, one and a half. Now, as far as the versus, you know, I was, wasn't as hyped up to see this one as you know previous verses that they had such like the locks versus dipset and the snoop versus dmx like i was looking forward to those this one i was like i'll check it out but man i was so pleasantly surprised and so happy at what i saw you know as far as ja rule yeah you, you're definitely right he definitely took this um without a shadow of a doubt you have to be like fat joe's a family member of fat joe to say that he won this versus um but the reason why I say Jaru took it is what you said, Danny, as far as the performance. I mean, the breath control, the energy, the charisma, timeless hits, you know. And he was just hitting you with hit after hit after hit. Now, the other thing Jaru did, and like anytime that you're competing, I just think that what the approach that he took is a gem that you can take in any type of competition that you may partake in. And that's he stuck to what he's good at. Like he never um, deviated away from what made him who he was. And I think that that is why it was such a lopsided victory in his favor. And so even when you're not talking about verses when it comes to music, I'm thinking about guys like Devin Haney, Shakur Steven. Like don't let people take you off of what you're good at. Like if you're a boxer, don't sit up there and be trying to slug with somebody to try to please other people because you want to stick to what you're good at. And so that's what he did. Um, the other thing is, 
like coming to that, I really wasn't a fan of Ja Rule, um, like when he was out. And it's mainly because of the other guys that was out at the same time. He was more like the popular pop hit type guy. But when you listen to him and how talented he is, even back then when you had guys who were your pop guys, they still had to have some similar talent um, in order to be, you know, at that elite level. It wasn't somebody that they were just pushing based on their popularity. Like Jaru is very talented, very good songwriter. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he's a singer, but he's a good harmonizer and he knows how to make those catchy hits. Um, so yeah, very good verses, man. I really appreciate it. I'm a Jaru fan. You know, I, he got me singing some of them songs, you know, that I, I wasn't singing before. Those lips, those thighs, I can't believe I don't know the lyric. You get what I'm saying. But anyway, um, yeah, man. So let's go ahead and get off into some of these topics for the week. I think we want to start off, you know, you got the big fight that was actually signed, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered. So I think we've already discussed who we think is going to win the Crawford versus Porter fight. But the question that I have for you, fellas, um, what do you think a win would do for each of these guys' legacy? If Bud Crawford wins this fight, it gives him so much against Sean Porter. It gives him so much uh, weight against the uh, – he finally has a, one of the, the PBC guys on his ledger. And how he wins this fight will – uh, determine what people, what how people view him against a fight with Errol Spence, who also fought Sean Porter, and of course he won. He won against Sean Porter. Errol Spence did, but he also it was also a close fight where Porter made uh, Spence uncomfortable at time, and it actually could have been a fight of the year. And I and I wouldn't be mad if I saw that fight again. Um, now for for Sean Porter, if Sean Porter wins this fight, it it solidifies him. He's 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 back in a mix as like a top three welterweight. Not that he really isn't a top welterweight, but it it it, it puts more more eyes on him, and people can't you know. I mean, Porter's the type of fight he, fighter that he's fought everyone in the weight class pretty much uh, in his era. I mean, of course, you have the new guys like Virgil Ortiz and, and Boots Ennis, but we look at the, the you know Ugas. Garcia, the only person, the only welterweight he, he hasn't fought that, that, you know, that's probably top five is Manny Pacquiao. So it's, it's interesting where I, it's hard to see where Sean Porter goes if he beats Terrence Crawford. But I mean, a win over Crawford is still a, a great thing. Though. Gotcha. All right. So for me, um, I mean, out the gate, what I'll say is this, is that this is a great opportunity for Terrence Bud Crawford, you know, to show why many regard him as the number one powerful pound fighter in the world. And when I speak on these things, this is if guys get a solid victory. Um, one thing that I'm kind of, I wouldn't say concerned about, but I'm definitely keeping an eye open is the fact that this is Crawford's last fight on top rank, as far as that top rank contract is concerned and top rank um, bought the rights to this fight. With that being said, it doesn't look like he's going to resign with them. They're not showing any signs that he's going to resign with them. And it's kind of like it's a strain between the two sides. So with that being said, unless he stops Porter, I don't see top rank like doing him any favors. You know what I mean? Because um, 
I think Bob, he can be kind of vindictive in that way. So that's something to, you know, look out for going into this matchup. The other thing, um, Crawford isn't getting any younger, so he needs these type of fights to add to his resume um, and then add to his allure. You know what I mean? If he wants to be not only talented-wise as far as the pound-for-pound type caliber fighter, but also as far as marketing is concerned, he needs these fights um, on his resume. Um, because by the time they fight, he's going to be 34. So he's 33 right now. He turns 34 September 28th, I want to say. And so also to me, this is the first legitimate threat he's facing in his career. Now, some people are like, well, he's, he fought legitimate guys. Now, what I'm saying is he's faced guys that were somewhat of a threat. You know, Gamboa was kind of smaller. Postal could have posed some problems, but I just thought he was just too quick for Postal. Um, but this is the first legitimate guy who, you know, if it's not 50, 50, 55, 45, somewhere along those lines, I didn't see anybody else that he's faced where I thought that they were actually going to beat him. I thought that he, if he took him lightly or something like that, if he caught, got caught slipping, then he could lose. But this fight, even if he's at his best, that Porter possesses some attributes that's going to give him trouble. Now he could demolish him. You know, he could hit Porter with something that he doesn't see because he, hits hard from some weird awkward angles but going into this fight first legitimate fight that he's, he's um, going into or that he's facing um like i say bud is complete man he's, he's complete as, as they come you know he can adapt to any style high iq great counter puncher he can lead apply pressure great finisher you know best switch hitter in boxing sean as i stated before he's a mauler he applies pressure and he relies on that that physical strength um you know, to get the job done. But also, sometimes he smothers his punches. He can't do that against uh, Terrence, Bud Crawford. Now, what does this fight do for both guys? For Porter, to me, this would solidify him. He would be a solid number two at welterweight. And then it will put him in line for the Spence rematch, Ugas rematch, and Whoever it is he wants to fight, he'll be right there kind of parallel with those guys in terms of, you know, guys wanting to come see him because he not only has the belt, but he, he would have beaten somebody who is considered one of the top fighters in the world. So it'll do wonders for him. A loss really doesn't do too, it's not too bad for him because he's still somebody that people will want to face because he's going to be that person that you have to get through in order to get to the other guys. But as far as like his the amount of money that he's going to be ma making and um, just it, it'll just put him in a hole. It, it'll be like the, the situation where we talk about Ja Rule and Fat Joe when they talked about yesterday's price. It's not yesterday. You know what I mean? It's, it's it, it'll change. Um, and then also, I think that if with a victory over Bud, then he'll be knocking on the door at Canastota, you know, the Boxing Hall of Fame. So, you know, it, it's the sky's the limit for Porter if he's able to defeat. Bud Crawford. Now, as far as Bud Crawford, as I stated before, I think what a win does for him, he'll be universally recognized as the number one pound for pound fighter in the world. He'll shut up all his naysayers and then he'll increase the anticipation for that spin spot. You know what I mean? I think that the, they turn the, uh, the burners down. Like people are not really clamoring for that fight like they were before. But if he beats Sean Porter and he beats him decisively, I think that that's going to um, turn those burners back on. You're going to hear a lot more people you know, looking to see those two, you know, get in the ring. And then lastly, I think what it'll do is that it'll increase his fan base, right? And then, like I say, his price will go up as well. And so 
either guy win, it's going to be um, huge for both guys. You guys said a good amount of anything I could have said about this and also a good point, Will, about um, this being his last fight on top rank, um, him being Bud Crawford. And so um, I won't say too much that hasn't been said, but it's essentially more about where you put Crawford than where you put Porter. It, it also depends on how he wins, though. Um, like you said, Will, if he wins a, a similar decision to Spence, then we could reasonably keep him where he's at in terms of wh where, where we have him ranked. Now, if he wins by a stoppage, um, then he looks, quote-unquote, better than Spence did. Or if he wins more decisively than Spence did, he looks better. So, um, you know, like you guys said, if, if that happens in either of those scenarios, the demand for that fight is back up. And also, we now see that a deal can be done between top rank and PBC. So it's going to be like, okay, so what's the excuse now? So if Porter wins, um, the demand for the Crawford-Spence fight goes out the window, similar to the way that the demand for A.J. Wilder went out the window when Wilder lost to Fury. And the welterweight rankings themselves don't change too much. I mean, you slide Crawford down one or two spots and you move Porter up one or two spots. Um, and then that puts Porter in the, in the position to rematch, like you guys said, maybe Ugas or Spence. You have unification because all the belts are on that side of the street. The, the price goes up, so on and so forth. Um, so Crawford has the most to gain and the most to lose in this fight, especially if, you know, with this being his last fight, if he were to win this fight, and then, in theory, come over to the PBC side, then, you know, he's kind of in the driver's seat in terms of who he could fight in that case. He could start really cementing his legacy as a welterweight if that were to go that way. And I think he has this in the back of his mind, and I think he's going to really look to make a statement in, in this one. Do you guys have anything else to add? Well, I think the question is, what do you guys think he's going to do once this contract it's expired. Do you think he's going to re-sign with top rank? Do you think he's going to jump over to PBC? Do you think he's going to go over to the zone? If he does join PBC, how do you think, do you think that that's going to um, increase the amount of fights that he has against those guys, like a Thurman, like a Garcia, like a uh, Ugas, like a Spence? Do you think that you will see more of those fights with Terrence Crawford if he signs with PBC? To answer your most recent question, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's – and you kind of see what they did with, with Pacquiao. We know when Pacquiao went over to PBC, he got the Broner fight. You know, he would have got the Spence fight. Um, Pacquiao has had good opposition, and he made the route, the move in the exact right time in his career. I think the same thing will happen with Crawford, but I also don't know what he's going to do. I mean, they did have that little rift late last year or whatever between him and Aram, but, you know, I thought he was going to go to PBC before he signed the extension and he signed the extension. So I don't know. He may be one of those guys where like he's loyal to a fault, but I, I hope for his career, not even legacy for his career, for his like to support his family after fighting is done. And that, in that sense, like he signs over to PBC just because that's where that's the place to be. If you're welterweight in boxing. Yeah, I think it opens him up for more chances to fight those guys. I think he'll fight some of them. Now, if when he just go through and they give him fight fights at PBC, if he signs with PBC, I'm not sure about that because I mean, 
just because somebody's with your promotion doesn't mean you won't, you will or won't duck them. You know, if you want to duck somebody, you're going to duck somebody. And PBC doesn't really force guys to fight other guys. You know, they'll suggest it and give them the money, but they're not going to necessarily force you to do it. So if somebody don't want to fight Terrence Crawford, they don't have to, even if they're with PBC. Yeah, and I was just asking, because uh, I, I was thinking along the lines of what you were saying, Danny, as far as, like, that just seemed to be the trend once guys leave top rank, is that they fight more of those, you know, obviously it's going to be in-house and you don't have that obstacle there. Because all of a sudden, you know, I think people are saying, you know, you can see how it isn't, um, like, impossible for those two sides of the street to work together but again this is his last fight on top rank so i think that's more up bob's alley now to make the fight happen because he don't care <laughs> you know what i'm saying like if he was still under contract with them and he knew that he was going to resign with them then i think it's less likely that he would be facing porter because they probably would make the demands a little bit too um like where it, it'd be to the point where porter it wouldn't be worth Porter taking a fight. But now that he's not going to be with them, they're more prone to, you know, giving in to some of those demands because of the fact that, you know, shoot, go ahead and fight him. Like, it's our last fight with you. So whatever happens, it just happens. But, you know, I think he'll be fighting more of those guys. I think you'll see him, Porter, um, not just him and Porter, but him, Thurman, um, Garcia, you know, some of those fights will be made, even when he's not fighting, you know, another champion. So... Yeah, it's hard to say. Well, he may he may fight more of them, but you know, just like with you know, I'm still waiting on uh Gary Russell and Santa Cruz, and they both were with PMC, and it never happened. Yeah, that's because I don't see any of those guys. Like when I think about a, a Danny Garcia, when I think about a Thurman, when I think about those guys, Leo Santa Cruz just didn't want to fight him. He didn't want to fight um, Rigo. Like, those are people, and he was making, he said he was trying to get $3 million to fight Rico. Like, come on, man. Like, that wasn't going to happen. But I, I don't think those guys are apprehensive on fighting um, Crawford in a manner in which Santa Cruz didn't want to fight Gary Russell. And I think it's not a skill, like, gap between that. Like, those guys are, will, will wipe the floor with Santa Cruz. But anyway, I, I don't know. It, it's just, you know, we shall see. Indeed. Fellas, next up, looks like it's box rec official that Mikey Garcia looks like he's going to be fighting Sandor Martin on October 16th. Um, how do you guys see that playing out? Well, you got Mikey. Mikey uh, is 33 years old, 41 with 30 KOs. It's 5'6", 68-inch reach. Sandor Martin is 38-2 with uh, 13 knockouts. He's a softball, 28 years old out of um, – Barcelona, Spain. Um, in this fight, to me, I won't, I'll be pretty brief because I just think that this is one of those um, kind of stay busy type fights for Mikey. Um, when it comes to his style, you know, I like to say Mike has the three C's. He's calm, careful, and confident. He takes that approach uh, when he fights. Very well-rounded uh, fighter. You know, doesn't do one thing particularly great, but he does everything well, you know. Great boxer puncher, um, solid fundamentally, strong jab, nice footwork. He's rarely involved in wars, but he's, he's, he's really fun to watch. His opponent, like I said, um, 
you know, I took a look at a few of his clips. It just doesn't look like he's on Mikey's level. And again, uh, Mikey was supposed to fight Regis Progress, but according to Mikey, he said their schedules just didn't match. Um, so again, he just had to find somebody, you know, to stay fine-tuned. And after this, he's supposed to fight either Regis or one of the belt holders um, in the welterweight division. So it looks like he will be facing somebody like a Porter Crawford uh, winner because he's ranked in the WBO. And then he's also ranked with the WBC. So that would be Spence. If I doubt if he'll get the Spence rematch because that was such a lopsided um, fight. So if he does take on a title holder, it'll probably be the winner of um, Porter Crawford, which would be a pretty good fight, um, whoever uh, wins that. This fight is at a catch weight of 145. Sandra Martin typically fights at 140. Mikey usually fights about 145, so you shouldn't have any problem making weight. Um, and again, at, it just—it's a skill level difference in this fight. Huge skill level difference. Um, Sander Martin, you know, one of his losses was to Anthony. Can you dig it, Yigit? <laughs> you know, man, he can't be Anthony. Can you dig it, Yigit? Recently got KO'd by Roly Romero. So that should tell you all that you need to know. Um, to me, in this fight, uh, what I predict is Mikey in less than five rounds. What's uh, Sander Martin is kind of Rod Salka-ish. You know, if you ever seen him fight, they fight, fight similarly. Um, so again, like I said, just a stay busy fight for Mikey. And I look forward to seeing, um, you know, what the future holds for him after he's victorious in this match. Yeah, I do think this is a good matchup to get him back in the mix. I mean, he's been training this whole time, but um, it's five and a half weeks out. But he hasn't fought since he beat Jesse Vargas in February 2020. I watched Martin's last fight against Kate Prosper, and, yeah, he doesn't really have a whole lot of power. He doesn't have a whole lot of head movement. And I feel like some of the combos he was throwing could, could just be timed. Like, I could just see Garcia, like, timing those pretty, pretty quickly and Martin not really being able to adjust. And he also hasn't faced strong opposition, whereas Garcia is only two years removed from fighting one of the best southpaws in the game in Errol Spence, and Martin is a southpaw. So um, I can see a clear Garcia decision. I can see him want to get some rounds in. And so, yeah, I think that's how it's going to go. Yeah, you guys make some excellent points. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see how – this is pretty much a stay-busy fight for Mikey Garcia. Um, Sander Martin, I, I, yeah, I, I looked up a few clips of him. Um, you both said it well. Uh, I think, Danny, you said that – he doesn't really move his head. It's almost like he, he moves his head back and he's, he's relying a lot on, on instinct. And, and he has this pawn jab that it's not really a stiff jab. Like what, what would give uh, someone like Mikey some trouble? I mean, of course he, he doesn't have like, uh, we, we could look at the, the one guy that did beat Mikey Garcia, uh, Errol Spence. Uh, Senator doesn't have that size or, or skill set, and he doesn't have a, and, most of all, he doesn't have a strong jab at all. It's like a pawing jab. And I, I, for the, the type of level fighters that Sander Martin fights, uh, he's able to do certain things against and looks like he's, you know, boxing against them. But once uh, a technician like Garcia start uh, forcing Martin into exchanges, I think he's going to pick Martin apart. Uh, and I say you stop him probably in, in you know, in the mid to, to late rounds. So it it's a good stay busy fight for Mikey Garcia to get and get back in the, in, in the groove of things. Cause I, uh, I think his last fight was the beginning of last year. 
and it's interesting where Mike Garcia goes because you know he's a smaller welterweight, uh, and it, possibly he probably could actually even make 140. Uh, and I know there were some you know talks for him to fight Regis Progre, um, and, and I don't know if he he wants to you know move back to 140, even though I guess most of the the good fights that could be made is at 147 with PBC. Uh, I agree with that. It's just that I'm not sure that I like his chances against all of those guys right now. But, you know, it's a good fight uh, against Sander Martin to get him back in the groove of things. Now, anything else you guys want to share? Yeah, there's a few other things. Like, Mikey's in a good space, you know what I mean? But he's one of those few guys who can move around. This fight is going to be on the zone. He can fight on PBC. Probably wouldn't fight any top rank because they had such a fallout, you know, of him trying to get out of that contract. And they had him, um, you know, on the sidelines for about two years. So outside of that, but he's, you know, a free agent pretty much. He can do what it is that he wants to do. I think this is a good fight from the standpoint that he's, if he fights Regis, I think they're going to fight at 147. So the fact that Martin is a lifelong 140 pound fighter, he's coming up just like Regis will be coming up and he's a southpaw and Regis is a southpaw. So, you know, some things, some angles and things like that, I'm sure that he's going to be trying to, you know, see, you know, how he can, you know, do his thing against that particular fighting style, but at the same time, just get a little bit of work in. So I think it's a win-win for him. Um, as far as Sander is concerned, it's just, I think the biggest thing to me is just going to be the lack of power. Like you have to have some type of power to be able to keep Mikey um, honest. And I don't think that, because he'll be able to exchange anytime he wants to, and he's not worried about what's going to come back at him. And he's such a highly skilled fighter that you don't want to give away that huge of an advantage, especially if you're not like a, you know, supreme boxer or anything like that. And then, and uh, Sandra's just not that. So that's all I just want to add in there. All right. So we'll, we'll definitely be checking that fight out um, uh, when it comes off. Uh, so um, next up. Uh, I heard that Jaime Magia, he's in talks to fight uh, Gabriel Rosado. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on that potential matchup and what do you think will happen in it? Before I get into it, um, I will add a little bit of context. He was originally scheduled to have a fight against Sergey Devrianchenko. Um, that was supposed to go to purse bid, but he put in a request to WBC to proceed with his contract to fight on, in October against Gabe Rosado and then proceed with the final elimination, which was granted by Mauricio Suleiman, who is the WBC commissioner. Um, he's currently the WBO mandatory challenger, meaning that the fight, taking that Devrianchenko fight would be riskier and it wouldn't get him any closer to the title shot that he already is supposed to have. So I'm personally not mad at him for doing this because Devrianchenko is a high risk, low reward fighter. And he has opportunity to look good against Gay Rosado, who was coming off a knockout against uh, Beck the Bully Melacuzia. So getting into the particulars, Munguia is 37-0, 30 knockouts, 24 years old, six foot tall. Uh, Rosado, 26-13, 26 and 13, 15 knockouts, 35 years old, 5'11 and a half. So at this point, Rosado is regarded as a gatekeeper, but he stays getting these types of fights because he has a fan-friendly style and he's also just not afraid to fight league competition. So, you know, I have a ton of respect for him, how he came up in the boxing world and the fact that he's still doing it. Um, so he's really doing it for the love at this point. Um, 
Munguia is one of those guys who you think is older than he really is, but he's just been around for a long time, you know, for him to have 37 pro fights and be only 24. Um, he does have skin in the game for sure. He's shown some promise early against his career, but his look beatable against opponents, elite fighters shouldn't look beatable against. And Rosado's not going to be as tough a challenge as Devrianchenko would have been, I don't think, but Rosado will make it a tough night for anybody if they don't come correct. Like, if you look at his last two fights, he gave Danny Jacobs all he can handle, and he was supposed to make Melikuziev look good, but ended up putting him to sleep. So I get why Munguia is taking his fight. I do think it could be a trap fight for him and that he will make it look harder than he needs. He will make it harder than he needs to. Um, and maybe this will be the fight where Munguia finally takes that leap that everybody has been expecting him to take since he beat Saddam Ali, what, three years ago. But as it stands now, I just don't know what which Munguia we're going to get. So I have it like 55-45 in favor of a Munguia decision. But I also wouldn't be surprised if Rosado ruined his night. It could really go... I wouldn't call it a toss-up, but I wouldn't. I just wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, great points. Um, I kind of agree with you, Danny. In some some cases, uh, I disagree as far as Rosado's risk factor. I think Rosado is high risk. Uh, it's just that they don't see it, and a lot of people don't see it. You know, I, as you said, I mean, if, if you don't come correct in a fight with Rosado, it's gonna be uh a tough night. And I, I think Rosado is one of those guys uh, where you look at his, re his resume, you look at his record, and you're like, eh, you know, he has this many losses. And you look at uh, some of those fights. I mean, you could be, it, it's easy to get mistaken, especially considering that, uh, as you stated, Rosado has been on a roll as of lately, you know, and, and it started with the Jacobs fight where. A lot of people, uh, you know, predicted that Jacobs would, you know, beat him down and possibly even stop him at, you know, some did believe that. And when that fight didn't happen, it was more uh, Jacob on the downside, this, this, and that. But it's really, I think it's uh, Rosado. Um, I don't know what he's doing, but he, it, it seems like he's on his, his second win of his uh, career. And, and he's one of those guys who don't let losses really dictate what he does. Like, he doesn't lose too much confidence when he does lose. And when you look at some of his losses, like with, you know, the, the, the Triple G, you know, Jaime uh, Mugia is, is, is really doesn't fight like that particularly. He, I don't think it's not as much as I think Mugia has an upside to him because he's young, you know, he's a, a volume puncher. He's not a, a Triple G. I don't look at him as a Triple G level type of fighter. Uh, and plus, uh, a lot of his victories, especially when I look at him at uh, 154, it was, it was almost like he was like with Jared Hurry, he has that that size advantage that just made him just dangerous. Like, especially considering when you watch that fight with Saddam Ali, that looked like he looked, Saddam Ali looked at like he was two weight classes smaller than the Munguia. So with Rosado, he's fighting a guy that, that, that probably is naturally even may even be bigger than Munguia is. So it's going to be an interesting fight to watch. Uh, I, I think Munguia might, it's possible that he's bitten off more than he can chew. Um, if I were him, I would have taken that Derechenko fight. But that's just me, you know. Yeah, my bad. I mean, either way, I still think that – I think he's only 23. I think that he's still – they might be rushing him still a little tad bit too soon. I think that he – and to me, he looked the best I've seen him in quite a while. 
in that Camille Shira meta fight that he had um, last a couple of few months ago, but he's still there to be hit and he still has work to do on the defensive end. He has some really good stuff that he does offensively and he has a, a pretty, um, you know, nice engine in terms of the amount of punches that he throws, you know, throughout the course of a fight. It's just Gabe Rosado was just so seasoned. And I would, shoot, just Gabe Rosado was 35. I thought he was a little bit older than that, just based on all of the years of uh, work that he's put in. You talk about the Triple G fight, like just going back to Charlo and all of those guys that he was fighting at 154. And it says a lot about him when he positioned himself to be number one at 154. And a lot of people were avoiding Triple G. And so instead of waiting to get the opportunity or being next in line for the fight at 154, he selected to take on the boogeyman at 160 as opposed to going after that 154-pound championship. So that says a lot about him. Like, that man is not afraid of anything. And like you said, Danny, that last fight against uh, Bechtemir, you know, where he – that's another bully that he was in the ring with, and he wasn't afraid to take on that task. And he ended up knocking him out because he is a consummate professional. You know, he's stuck in there and he was just waiting on that one punch that he was open for. The thing with McGee, he's going to be open at certain times to get hit with that shot. And even if he's not getting hit with that shot, Rosado is just a tough cookie, man. When you look at those 13 losses that he has, a lot of those losses could have went either way. And on top of that, he has a lot of losses because he's learning on the job. He didn't have that extensive amateur background, so he's learned a lot. And he's put himself in a position to take losses by the high-caliber opponents that he takes on. So he is just that's just how it's going to be, but he's going to be a stiff um, opponent especially for Munguia. Munguia has a lot, a lot of holes in this game. Um, that's why I was hoping that maybe two or three fights down the line that they would take on somebody like Gabe Rosado or even a Darian Chinko because he still has time to groom himself and it's certain things that he still can work on. But to me, it's more so a 50-50 fight. I just think that if it goes down to the wire and it goes to a decision, then Gabe Rosado is really going to have to have a huge – it's going to have to be without a a shuttle without for him to get the decision, but he's more than capable of stopping McGee. So, like I said, for me at this juncture, um, based on what I've seen from both guys, I think it's a 50 50 fight. You guys have anything else about this fight or this bout? Yeah, I predict that Rosado upsets McGee. That's my uh prediction. <laughs> How do you see? You see a decision or you do see a KO? I'm not sure he's gonna stop McGee, but I think he's gonna uh, I, I say he beats him up and has a uh. And wins the decision over him. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it says a lot about, you know, his people to put him in a fight like that. They see that he or they think that, you know, he really is, you know, one of those guys. You know what I mean? For them to put him against. If they end up signing uh, for this fight, that they really think that they have a hot commodity. Because if they didn't, he's at a point now where they could cash him out where they can have him fight against lesser caliber opponents and then just put him in there with one of the big guns and then just get a payday. So it says a lot, you know, that they put him in there with them. Uh, yeah, and I, and I agree with you. Uh, the only thing is with them rushing him, I think what, what happened was 
I think they made a mistake when they put him in there with Saddam Ali, even though that was a good win. It, it put eyes on him too soon, and he probably wasn't ready for that caliber. Because once he beat Saddam Ali, he had the belt, and everyone was, you know, um, Magia against Charlo and all these other people that he probably wasn't ready for. So even after that, he took on some fights where uh, a lot of people thought they were underwhelming, and there was pressure for him to step his game up and fight uh, um, better competition. So that's how we got to this point, I think. I think. Uh, really, it was some of the fans that got tired of McGee, you know, holding on to the, the – it really happened at 154 when they, they got tired of him holding on to the strap and not fighting the competition they probably wasn't even ready for in the beginning. Yeah, make a good point. Yeah, I think we can talk about that because it's a couple other things that I would mention, but I don't want to spend too much time. I, I'm not, you know, dissing McGee, but I just think right now we'll see how things go with this bout. You know, if we can, you know, give them a little bit more attention and, you know, moving forward. But let's go ahead and move on to um, our second to the last topic. Last week, we had the Valdez versus Conceicao um, fight, which was ended in a controversial decision. And Valdez was declared the winner. One of the scorecards, you know, is 117 to 111. That kind of shocked most people who viewed the fight. But later on this past week, one of the judges, um, he ended up apologizing for a scorecard. He gave his reasons why it was such a wide uh, margin of victory that he had for Valdez. But uh, my question to you guys is, you know, what do you think about that? What do you think about the WBC judge apologizing for his scorecard? Hey, apologies don't change the, the, the result. That's what I'm saying. Now, now, it's all good that he apologized. And I think more judges should step up when they made a mistake. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, what does that what does that do? The boxer still suffers, and and they're not, I'm not really talking about this this fight specifically because Casa Sasayo, you know, still did suffer. But I'm talking about fighters in general when these type of things happen. If you apologize to somebody, I mean, what does that do for their career? You know, it's, especially when you, when you look at robberies. You know, like for example, the uh, Julio Cesar Chavez versus Pernell Whitaker fight, where which was a rule to draw if a, if a judge apologized to Pernell Whitaker for that you know draw that he should have won what does that do for him I mean it might bring some some attention you know it might bring some uh temporary comfort but at the end of the day he doesn't have that W over uh the fighter that he deserved to win against um but I did hear that you know the judge did uh he did Voluntary decide to remove himself from any championship assignments until he undergoes, quote, unquote, a thorough training and review program, unquote, whatever that means. Now, whatever that is, I mean, I, th I think that it should happen more where judges should be schooled on how to judge fights and, and, and things of that nature and how to. I, I, and, and this is me going on a, a, a thought rant. Um, Judges should, you know, they should they should be trained how to judge a fight, just like fighters are trained how to fight, because these are fighters' careers and and they're determining the outcomes of what happened. And then there's the gambling aspects of it, but I don't want to get into it. I don't want to want anyone accused of you know throwing fights or anything like that. But that that's a fact. It does exist where where you know there's money to be made on the gambling side of, of, of fights. Uh, that's in just about every sport. So you never know what's going on in the background. But at the end of the day, I mean, what is a apology going to do if a fighter believed they won and you scored their loss? I mean, 
it is not going to give them more money. <laughs> but that's just my thoughts. Yeah. Man, this is this is crazy. Like, and so that's what I was kind of you know alluding to last week as far as you know Robeson, man. He had everything going against him. So before the fight even started, you had Oscar Valdez testing positive for a banned substance, A sample and B sample. And then the WBC just dismissing it. Like, uh, it's really, it's, that's no big deal. It's like he had three Red Bulls. That's what that particular type of substance does for you. So they just went ahead and, and wiped that slate clean, allowed the man to fight. And then in the fight, you had the referee. The referee takes a point away from Robeson during a fight. No warning. <laughs> he just, just, he tapped the dude on the back of the head. It was just more so kind of like a playful type gesture. And the man and the referee takes a point. And then Valdez, on the other hand, I rewatched the fight and I saw him give Valdez three warnings for um, hitting behind the head. And so all in all, this man is not getting a fair shake, fair shot in this fight. There's no way in the world that you watch those first six rounds. And you either had to give him five of those six or all six of those first rounds. So there's no way in the world that it could have been 117-111 in the first place. But again, he's saying that his vision was obscured or whatever. Um, and as far as him needing training, you know, to learn how to judge a fight, I think it's more so this. It's just like somebody who does something. Let's say, for instance, you get caught doing some racist stuff or saying some racist stuff, and you say, you know what, I need sensitive training or something like that when it comes to different you know, races of people, whatever. I mean, you can go that route, but I think for him, when you like dig beneath the surface, you will see that the man works for w the WBC. So that's a conflict of interest. You're not going to, you know that the WBC is going above and beyond to allow Valdez to fight. You know that he's their golden child. So you're not going to see it in any way, shape, where you're going to be objective to the other guy. You're going to make sure that Valdez wins because you know that that's what the WBC wants because you work for the WBC. Again, that should never happen. You can't have a fight like this where a judge actually works for that particular organization. It's just a total conflict of interest. So that's more so the problem than anything else. Now, as far as what they should do, and say, see, oh, man, he should, for one, they need to erase the, the loss from his record. This should be declared a no contest. He should get an immediate rematch. Um, and even before this, Wetchcombe should have been suspended. And, and he should have been fighting somebody else for that belt. That's, you know, the first thing. But if they're not going to do that, at the very least, they got to remove that L from his record and allow the man to get that rematch. It's, it's absurd. Um, so I read his apology. And he said that he alluded to there being close rounds where he said he made two mistakes. Uh, one of those mistakes was not to score, score them 10-10 in two rounds where he felt like there was not a clear winner and scoring those to the champion, giving him the benefit of the doubt in close actions. He also said that he let the crowd noise influence him and due to some camera angles, um, he missed some things and um, he thought in the moment he was able to do his job 100%. Um, and he said he rewatched the, the, the fight and that he scored at 115-112 or a 114-113 in favor of Valdez. And uh, you guys already said everything else that he said, more or less. Um, 
I'll play Devin's advocate here. I commend him for at least being bold enough to to come out and admit that he had a bad night. Um, it seemed heartfelt, and it seemed like he takes his craft serious, and I could see those being real issues happening in real time. Um, most judges just keep it moving after an off night. Um, that said, I might feel differently if it would have affected the outcome at all, but it didn't. And so to that, I'll just say that it was refreshing in a way to hear this from coming from a judge. Now that said, you know, the bar for judges is pretty low in the sport of boxing. It has been for quite some time. And so, you know what I mean? Like there was what happened was going to happen, whether he scored a 117, 110, 114, 113, it was, it was going to happen regardless. Worst case scenario, it's a split decision, given the rest of the night, how that happened. Um, that's all I got. I mean, there, there are some nights where I'm at a fight party and there's a background noise or I can't get a great view of the TV and I'm trying to score the fight myself. And by the end of the round, I'm not sure who to give it to. So, uh, yeah, I can see the issues happening. The main issues are real time. Refs in sports like basketball and football, um, they make bad calls in real time. And, um, you know, I, I'm not saying like, you know, I, I'm just going to assume that there was no outside influence and he just had a bad night in the sense that it didn't affect the outcome at all. I'm not mad at what he did here. The man works for the WBC. Like, that's crazy. Like he works for them. So they just go ahead and issue an apology. You know, we'll take care of, it. you know what I mean? That type of thing, you know? And like I say, the, the, the bigger, that is not the bigger thing. In addition to that, the man is going against, I'm talking about Robeson and Stacey Allen. He's going against a fighter who tested positive, A and B sample. He's going against a referee who took a point away from him. No warning at all. The other guy has three warnings for the same thing. And then on top of that, the third thing is this judge. Like, it, even when you listen to the, the commentating, it was like, it was just no way in the world this dude stood a chance unless he won by knockout. That's the only way. And I can see them probably um, disqualifying him for something. You know what I mean? Like he was not going to come out of that stadium or arena with that victory. I don't, I don't buy what this dude is saying because this, in boxing, this happens quite too often. And the WBC just seemed like they get shadier and shadier, you know, with, their decisions and um, all of the events that's pertaining to them. You know, Canelo, like those guys, as far as testing positive, they have four guys. Like, and then Canelo, when he tested positive for Calambruderol, what they did instead of, they just upped the level of how much Calambruderol that you can have in your system. Like, that's crazy. Like, I don't know, man. I, I just think that them dudes are, um, scumbags man that's just that's how i see it i hear you i'm just talking about get based on what i know about this ref in particular in the context of a fight where the two judges had already scored it valdez like, i feel bad for consecial too he had it only way only way out was going to be a knockout but in a sense that this referee made some scored some rounds incorrectly and you know you can't undo it but you but to go back and be like you know what my bad. Like, that's all. All I have is that, you know. Check this out, though, Danny. Like, if if that was the case, 
where you are judging about your vision is obscure. Wouldn't you like let somebody know and instead of just assuming <laughs> that what's going on, like that's your job is to make sure that you have the best view possible so you can accurately judge this fight. It's not like you just a, a spectator who watching this fight and, you know, oh man, I caught it later. Cause it really is no, it's not going to impact the outcome whatsoever. If you just a spectator, you know, you're just a fan. You're not getting paid to do that, but somehow, some way you got to let them know that you can't see. It's, it's a little I, late. I, I agree with you, Will, on that. But how is that? I mean, you just get up in the middle of the fight and say, I can't see. I mean, how does that go? I don't <laughs> and know. You don't I, know. And I agree with you. There has to, something has to happen. But at that, just, by the time you figure that out, it's too late. But, but one thing I will say is that it's, it's hard to see that. I don't care what angle you're looking at that fight. The first five rounds of that, you look at the body language of the fighters and not think that's a close, those were close rounds. But that's just my opinion on that. All of that. But what I'm saying is it's a little late, like a couple of days later, you know what I mean? Everybody's coming down on you and, you know, people like, man, look at the scorecard or whatever. You know, you starting to feel embarrassed and ashamed and all of that type of stuff. And you never know. I, I can't speculate and know really what was going on with him. I know he works for the WBC. He has a long history with them on his, his, his uh, social media. He has like the WBC, all type of stuff. Like if you look through some of his images and pictures and stuff like that. So he has a relationship with them and he works for them. So it just, it's, it's a bad smell to this, man. But to answer your question, at some, some way, like, if you can't see, <laughs> like, shouldn't you, I can see if he said, yeah, during a fight, I really couldn't see, and I attempted to do this, or I attempted to do that, or something like that. But just to assume that dude is winning, and you the judge, like, that just, I don't know, that, that don't sit well with me, man. <laughs> I got nothing else. I mean, he said he, he said that, but he also said he honestly thought he could still do a job 100%. All I have is his words. I, I hear y'all, but I hear his apology, oh. and I'm just going to take him at his word. And see, some days I think, you know what? I could judge fights. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I don't really want to judge fights. I don't want that type of scrutiny. I, I mean, it's even some days I think, you know what? I should, I should, it'd be cool to ref fights on the weekend or something like that. But at the end of the day, I don't really want to ref fights. I, I don't want that type of pressure. <laughs> nah. I, I feel you. I feel you. Like I said, this, this dude just, it just go hand in hand with, like, the corruption that goes on in the sport. You know what I'm saying? Like, like again, at, at the end of the day, those first five rounds, I mean, one of you guys said it last week. It's like, man, I was thinking that how can this dude lose the fight? You know what I mean? Now, he did some things that he probably could have done better. You know what I mean? I know that he got fatigued and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you can't take away like how lopsided it was that first half of the fight. That's all I got. That's all I got. All right. So the last topic for today, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, I think this is our first time doing a non-boxing topic as a topic. But um, we're going to go over our favorite rap groups. Fellas, who are your favorite groups in, in the rap game? Well, I hope you fellas are talking about uh, all time because I like when it comes like the current landscape of hip-hop you know i don't it's not it's rare uh Lee do i listen to you know much of like the current rap guys you know the newer newer guys you know i would say now there is a, a group or two that i do like like uh, the griselda with um west side gun and uh, conway and benny you know i i really like them they bring in that old nostalgic 
New York sound and feel back. The only thing that I hold against those guys, if if I you know if I'm using the right terminology, is that they like one trick ponies. You know what I mean? Like they just talk about the same subject matter um, all the time. But as far as me, you know, getting in the gym, want to listen to some hardcore hip hop. You know, I throw those fellas on. You know, and nine times out of ten, I can get a great workout listening to them. You know, mainly Benny because I, you know I like guys who have bars. You know what I mean? That that be spitting that stuff and that you can hear them on something like a sway in the morning freestyling, you know, guys like Pat Poos and, and people of that, that ilk, you know, but as far as my, my top rap groups of all time, um, I just, man, I can't narrow it down. So I can give you 10 that at some, at some point they were like my favorite group, you know what I mean? But I'm going to give you also an honorable mention, honorable mention is going to be rather lengthy as well. You know, I'm, I'm going to, start off with UGK. I'm a big fan of Bum B. Well, I was a huge fan of Pimp C. You know, that murder that they had, that one song, um, Riding Dirty, you know, get your mind right, girl, I'm a pimp. You know, Pimp C used to be talking that stuff. Um, A-ball and MJG, you know, I used to love them. Ghetto Boys, Goody Mob, um, P.E., they could be in my top 10. It, it, I was like, when I'm thinking of this, I'm like, man, P.E., they, I, I'm, I'm going to put P.E., I, I just have to have 11, because P. at one point, P.E. was my group, man. Like, you couldn't tell me anything about Chuck and Flay, you know what I'm saying? Um, so they, they, they are my top 11. Uh, and then Houdini, you know what I mean? At five minutes of funk, you know, they was, uh, you know, one of them, one of them ones as well. Now, as far as my top 10, in no particular order, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to say, I'll tell you what, let me put, I'm going to put Public Enemy in there. I'm going to take out Houdini. And so Houdini, I mean, Public Enemy would be in there. Uh, Run DMC, right from the time Rockbox came out, man, you know, I was a really huge Run DMC fan. As a matter of fact, in middle school, we performed Proud to be Black for uh, Black History Month. And I was DMC, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and the whole school was treating me like DMC, you know what I'm saying? We had a little group, my boy, Mark Briggs, he was Run, and then my partner, Corey, he was Jam Master J, but we knew all their lyrics to all of their songs and, and whatnot, but we would perform that. I'm in the Locks. The Locks is one of my favorite groups of all time. I'm just gonna go down the list. Mob Deep, oh my God, I used to love Mob Deep. Tribe Called Quest, Outkast, um, Daylight got to be in there because Stakes is High. When that came out, that's a classic CD. If you have not heard Stakes is High, make sure you go ahead and listen to that CD. NWA is one of my favorite groups of all time. You know, when I was listening to them, you know, only thing is they had like a little negative influence on me. You know what I mean? I thought I was uh, MC Ren and stuff, you know what I'm saying, for a minute. And BDP, you know, Chris, Scott LaRock. And then last but not least, it's going to be EPMD. So that rounds out my top 10 as far as my favorite rap groups of all time. All right, I'm going to give you sort of my all-time list, and then I'm going to shout out some, some current ones because I, I know you guys don't listen to a whole lot of current rap. And I'm going to be a little creative on that one too, but let me get into the all-time. Um, in no particular order, uh, Black Star will always have a special place in my heart because they were one of the first groups I really became familiar with like that. Um, rap wasn't, I don't know if I ever told y'all this, but rap wasn't allowed in my household. So I, I was spending the night at my cousin's house on weekends and my older cousin was, was on them heavy. And so eventually when I could sneak to the record store, not the record store, but you know, the CD store or whatever, I bought the CD myself and I learned most of the words and they didn't have like a long moment, but the moment that they had was impactful for me. And their music 
a lot of the music still hits to this day. Um, the roots you can give to them all the strength and longevity alone for real. Um, Things Fall Apart is still a top 10 rap album to me and my personal on my personal list at least. Black Thought is a top five MC of all time. Um, or it could be regarded as one. And it was very good for a long time. I will go uh clips for, for sentimental 757 related reasons. I'll always remember when when grinding started to get national recognition. And they performed halftime at an and one game at Nova State, and everybody went crazy. Plus, uh, Neptune was one of my favorite producers, and so I pers- and I personally met um, both members randomly in the area on different occasions. So, gotta go clips. Um, little brother really defined my college years and the way they would trade bars, reminiscent of the way like Tribe used to. Ninth Wonder's production was crazy. Um, I hate that they broke up, but I'm glad that they um, eventually became friends again and got back together. Um, a tribe called Quest goes without saying, just smooth beats over over smooth lyrics. Uh, Q-Tip, in my opinion, has one of the best, like, God-given rap voices in the game. Um, so I would go Tribe. 3-6 uh, Mafia, I feel like they really don't get the credit they should, but their influence, especially in that Memphis sound, is heavy. And they still put out good music to this day. Um, Outkast, got to shout them out. They were ahead of their time. Um, they sound just different and... Um, and I, I really appreciate what they did for the game. Uh, so current, I got to shout out Dreamville as a collective. Um, I'm not a huge fan of one one artist in particular, but uh, Jit has crazy bars. J. Cole, when he gets in that zone, he, he can really go off. Um, Boss is solid. And so they, they have some spitters in there. And when I say current, to be clear, before I name a, a few of these others, I'm going to go like last 10 years current. You know what I mean? So um, I would go Odd Future. You know what I mean? They had Tyler come out of Odd Future. They had um, Earl Sweatshirt. Uh, Frank Ocean, people sleep on his on him as a rapper, but when he decides to rap, he's a pretty solid rapper. And they had the Internet Collective, um, who is a technically R&B group, but you got Patrick Page, who just dropped the album. Patrick Page is their, uh, their bass guitarist, but he, has, he, he can, you know, he got bars too. So got to shout out our future. Um, and I don't know if they, this would count because they're like an official, like an unofficial group, but um, I will go Black Hippie for sure with uh, Kendrick, Abso, J-Rock, and Schoolboy Q. And I think that's all I can think of. Yeah, y'all got some some, some ill lists there. So I'm kind of like y'all. I, it's, it's hard to really rank the groups that I have. I don't really listen to a lot of new groups lately but uh Griselda movement is actually one that that I, I check out and, and I'm very impressed with what they're doing especially in this landscape that they're going against the grain um that said uh it's hard to select uh uh whenever I I, I people ask you know who's my favorite rapper or favorite group it's hard to really select one but it, there's a group that I consistently listen to regardless it's, like I, I won't I won't just out and say that's this is my favorite group but whenever I put them on, I could just listen to them and I listen to them consistently. Even if I don't think that they're the best produced, even on my list, I always listen to them. And I'm talking about the RZA, the Jizza, Oh Dirty Bastard, Inspector Deck, Raekwon, the Chef, Master Killer, You Got, Ghostface Killer, and the Meth. And you know what's funny about it, about the Wu-Tang Clan, what I'm talking about? It's, I didn't even like them at first. <laughs> when they first came out, I thought, 
I, I thought they were just gimmicky. And I'm like, who, who are these guys coming in with these, these kung fu beats and stuff like that? Because at that time, the West Coast was running it. You know, the Chronic had dropped and, and Snoop was about to drop. You know, and then you got these guys and you have nine of them. They're all just rapping, just going through them. And it, but I didn't, I, it, it took me time to realize that, that they were providing that balance that, you know, a lot of their, their beats and their styles are more, you know, unpolished, but it was beauty in that. You know, and, and every and all nine of them had their own style. And and it's easy to to to, to rank them and say one is better than the other. But you if you really listen to them, each one has shined somewhere on somebody's album where you just like, wow, where they could have been the best one, you know, in the group. And it's funny, I, yeah, I, like I said, I didn't really like them at first. Um, of course, they came out with, with Inner the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers album. And then Meth came out. And I was like, okay, you know, you know, get some traction and then ODB. But it wasn't until the purple tape, the, 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 the only built from Cuban links that really was like, you know what, these guys kind of dope. And then the Jizza dropped right behind that. It was like two or three months later, the Jizza came out with Liquid Swords. And that's when I went back and started buying all the albums and and, and Maybe this Method Man guy, you know, maybe he's really, really dope, you know. So I can still play them um, to this day, you know. They're all still dope to me. And, you know, I I, I know a lot about the, the history of the group. But shout out to the other groups that I thought were really, really dope. It made this hard. Of course, there's Outkast, which um, they're one of the few uh, groups that can have that, that have like two really, really classic albums, two or more. Like, I, I know the first time I heard Southern Playalistic and the first time I heard Quimini, I knew they were classics. Even AT Aliens was, was really, really good album. Uh, then you have A Tribe Called Quest, of course. Uh, they, they're really dope, you know. Uh, the, if, if you haven't heard, the low end theory is what, you know, made Dr. Dre make the chronic because uh, he felt that he, they needed a, he needed a, Dr. Dre felt he needed a West Coast backdrop to what, you know, Tribe Called Quest was doing because they were so good sonically. Then you got to go back to, you know, where it started to run DMC. Uh, and and that, that just goes without saying, if you haven't heard Run DMC and haven't went through why they, they're up there, go listen to them. And then you have Mob Deep. And Mob Deep is, is a group also that I probably didn't like at first, but the more I listened to them, you know, I, you know, uh, Prodigy's rap style is nasty and Havoc's production style. Uh, some people might not like what I'm about to say, but I thought Havoc was a better producer than RZA. And, and I'm a big RZA fan, but if you listen to Havoc's instrumentals, just YouTube and just listen to his instrumentals, he's probably one of the best producers we probably ever heard. Like his, he's more consistent than RZA. Even though RZA, I thought, can be better on certain fronts, I thought Havoc is more consistent. Um, then you have... Uh, the ghetto boys you know i, I liked uh of course scarface is one of my one of my favorite mcs but then you have you know big mike and bushwick and willie d i i, I throw big mike in there because I, I really like that uh to death do us part album i thought that was for to me it was their my favorite album that i have because they were different from nwa that that you felt so i felt something i didn't feel like these, these guys just being you know out there just being bad guys there was a reason for it you know, and, and I learned every time I listened to a, a Ghetto Boys album. Um, and then you have the EPMD, Eric and Parrish, uh, making dollars or making ducats, whatever way they, they do it. Um, in case you haven't heard, they discovered a, a little known rugged MC on a, from Newark, New Jersey named Red Man. So 
Uh, and, and last but not least, I, I throw Bone in there, and, and a lot of people hate on Bone, but everybody wanted to rap like Bone. Even to this day, you have I gotta put a, a, a flow on my album that's that's just like this. And they don't know that that style came from Bone. So these those are my top groups. You know, I'm still a, a student of the rap game, especially when it comes to old school. Um, so there you go. Yeah, man, that was a good list. I didn't know you you fellas was go, gonna go in like that, but. Speaking of bone, remember when guys used to come out and when they were at the height of their careers, they had to have a bone feature. Remember, Pac had to have one, Biggie had to have one. When P had his run, he had to get them on there. So, yeah, they were very influential. Like you say, even to this day, you know, they're saying that like the Migos and, and guys like that kind of still in their, you know, flow and whatnot. But yeah, you guys had some really good lists. I like that. Um, Kendrick group too with Rock and um, Schoolboy Q, and, and I was I was up on them probably about maybe ten years ago. I was listening to them real heavy, but some of the other groups. One of the group that I um, failed to mention that I used to listen to. If you want to consider them a group, they're more of a um, like crew, I would say, and that, that's going to be Dipset. Like I used to be banging Dipset mm -hmm. heavy. That was one of my favorite groups, also. But yeah, man, all of them like are near and dear my heart. Like when Outkast came out, I think people like hardcore hip hop fans, they sleep, you know, it sold well. It, it really did a good job of selling, but hardcore hip hop fans, I don't think they give credit for that Love Below, Speaker Boss Love Below album. And, and Dre, how he, you know, went into that singing back, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like that part of the CD, like that's classic. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, some of them other groups like Mob Deep with Prodigy, like Prodigy, some of them dudes at one point, Prodigy was that dude, right? You know, it was like Jay-Z, Nas, and he was like right there. That's why Jay-Z felt the need to diss him on a takeover. Like he said a little something about him because he was up there. Like he was right on the cusp of being like if somebody was A, he was like 1A, you know what I'm saying? 1B, like he was right there. But uh, the last thing I'm going to say is this, is that when we started the show and we were talking about the verses with Fat Joe, Fat Joe was a cold dude, too, you know, back in the day. I thought that Fat Joe, when he came out, he was trying to, like, piggyback off Biggie style a little bit um, when he came out with his first CD, but then he kind of found himself. But what I was going to say about Ja Rule, see, I didn't really too much care for Ja Rule when he came out, not necessarily the fact that he wasn't talented. It was just you had those caliber of MCs that you just I like more. You know what I mean? Like J.D. Kiss um, was was on the cusp of being that dude. You still had Nas out there. You still had Jay-Z in his prime. You still had Prodigy in his prime. So those dudes were the ones I was gravitating to. But as far as who was selling DMX, you know what I'm saying? He was had hit after hit and so that's the reason why i never really like bought into him as much as other people who but he would rock a party you know what i'm saying and he had that talent but you see it now and the other thing too with ja Rule was the fact that 50 kind of clipped his wings so when 50 came out he was of the cloth of those dudes that I'm mentioning in terms of the ruggedness that he brought to the table, like a DMX, like a Prodigy and all of those dudes. But he was also could create the songs that was popular that was on the radio. So you kind of, and he was doing similar things that Ja Rule was doing as far as the harmonizing as well. So he brought the more grittiness, 
And so people just flocked. And he had the storyline with being shot nine times or however many times, five times, whatever. And people gravitated towards that story. And they were kind of getting like tired of listening to Ja Rule. And Ja Rule kind of got a little comfortable being on top with the cardigan sweaters and all of that type of stuff. And so hardcore people and then uh, just fans in general start listening to G-Unit. G-Unit just had their run and then people forgot about Ja Rule up until this past week. So when Ja Rule came out and he was hitting you with those hits after hits and he's showcasing the talent that he has, it's like refreshing to see, especially in this era now where you don't have people who are craftsmen, who you can like listen to their lyrics and you know have meaning behind what it is they're saying and he has all of those things that he brings to the table. It just was refreshing to see. And I'm happy for him because those guys are, the spotlight is being back on those guys. And hopefully moving forward, when you, these, these younger guys will step their game up and become more of a craftsman, craftsman and students of the game. And so I think that this is going to be refreshing um, for hip hop moving forward. And hopefully we start to have more guys that if we do a list, let's say five years from now, it'll be newer guys on there. And you can see and say, yeah, I can, I like what that young man is doing and what he's bringing to the table. And we'll have more of that. Anything else you guys have before we wrap things up? No, no, you said it right. You said it well, man. Represent. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Hopefully we'll have more discussions like this in the future because, you know, that's a big part. You know, I know in my day, like when I start my day off and I go to the gym, I'm constantly, those guys are constantly in rotation. And I'm looking to see, you know, some other guys that I can listen to. So you just mentioned a group or two on the playback. I'm going to listen and I'll probably check some of those guys out that you guys had on your list that I didn't have on my list and, you know, see what they sound like. And I'll let you know what I think. You know what I mean? On that note, you know, good conversation once again. Also, as far as our social media, I'm trying to do a better job of putting things on there. Um, so you be on the lookout for that. It's just for me, I've been back at work, bro. And last week I had my first five day week, you know, in about a year and a half and damn near took me out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that I Thursday going into Friday, your boy was uh, just exhausted. But, you know, I think I got everything under control now so I can start, you know, working on our social media um, page as well. But on that note, man, everybody have a great week. Hopefully you enjoyed the show and we look forward to chatting with you next week. Peace. Peace. Peace.